Inside Books with Breda Brown. Welcome to Inside Books, a programme about the magical world of writing. I'm Breda Brown and in each episode of Inside Books, we chat to people associated with the world of books, including well-known authors, publishers, editors, agents, critics, booksellers and more. You'll find Inside Books on all audio platforms and our Twitter handle is at InsideBooksIRE, where you'll also find lots of other interesting books news. My guest today is Ethna Shorthall, a journalist who has written four popular fiction titles. After studying journalism at DCU, Ethna joined the Sunday Times and after a spell as the chief arts writer for the paper, she recently took on the role as editor of the Home Supplement. Her first novel, Love in Row 27, was published in 2017 and was a best-selling debut that has also been optioned for a TV series by NBC Universal Studios International. That's the production company behind Downton Abbey. Her second book was called Grace After Henry, which was shortlisted for the Irish Book Awards. Her third book was shortlisted for the BBC Radio 2 Book Club pick. And her latest one is called It Could Never Happen Here. Ethna, I'm just wondering, firstly, is it true your very first piece published was a poem when you were 11? Yeah, well, it was my first paid work, yes. (laughs) From the Messenger magazine. I don't know if you remember Oh, really? Yes, I do. Yeah. So my granny, she still gets it. Um, she, and uh, yeah, there was like kids corner or something in it. And I entered. It wasn't my first entry now. I think I entered a couple of times and didn't uh, didn't win. And then I wrote a poem about St. Patrick's Day. I was 12. I got 20 pounds for it. So, well done. Yeah, that, was, that was the beginning. <laughs> so but you were persistent. You didn't win the first time. So you kept going. Yeah, well, I loved writing poems as a kid anyway. Like my, my room was full of notebooks that were full of poems. So I was just, you know, find something and enter it. And yeah, I think it was probably my second or third entry. Um, and I always was suspicious that the people that were winning, their parents had really written the poems yeah. for them, you know. <laughs> so how come then you moved? And, and I suppose we'll talk about the background in a second, but you moved into into writing more long form as opposed to poetry then. Do you still harbour a desire for poetry? No, not now. I, I wrote poems up until my mid twenties, I guess. Um, I never, like, I never seriously thought of it as a career. I loved it, and I, I read poetry. Um, but I guess I know it's not something that you can make a living from, and you know, so I would never have thought about it in those terms. Um, I do. I think they can have an, a greater effect on you, a single poem than a novel, because you can consume it quickly, sort of the way a song can tell a whole story. Um, but I don't, I guess I have so little time, even for the writing mm. I'm supposed to do, but yeah. the, that there's very little extra that would be purely just for me, you know, I, so I, I don't do that anymore. So you went to DCU and you did journalism. So obviously the poetry, though, did set you on a, on a writing road. Yeah, well, I wanted to write. Um, that was for sure. And I mean, I was always writing in some form. I made up plays throughout school and we would get off. We would get to finish school early on a Friday afternoon because I would be putting on these plays, you know, just coming up with them in the yard and putting them on. Um, and I was always doing stuff like that. And I definitely wanted to write in some capacity. And then I guess um, my parents are kind of practical people. And, you know, it was definite that I would finish school, do my living cert and go to university. There was never really a conversation about any other route. And so I wanted to write and journalism just seemed like the most practical way to do that. And it's not even that practical because, you know, it's a it's a difficult industry to get into. And, you know, it's always in it always seems to be in jeopardy, though it continues. But it just seemed somewhat more feasible than writing a novel, which, you know, was it's something I wanted to do. But I, 
wasn't sure that I ever would or how you did that or definitely never thought about how one would make a living from it. You know? But you, you joined the Sunday Times and you've carved out a, a great career there over the years. Yeah, I went there. I started there when I was 21, which is so young, really, like when you when you think about it. And I found that first year where I worked there very difficult because the, it's kind of the weight of responsibility, like the constant fear that I would liable someone or, you know. Um, and so I was there for a year at 21. And then when I, after, it was pretty much exactly a year, I left and I went to Paris and I was in Paris for a year and a half. And I was hanging out with a lot of people that were talking about writing. We hung around the Shakespeare and Company bookshop there. Oh, really? You know, um, yeah. And you could stay there as a tumbleweed if you didn't have somewhere else to stay. So I had stayed there sort of unofficially, but I had friends that were staying there for months at a time. And you would just sleep on the, the floor of the bookshop. And we hung around and we drank lots of wine and we talked about writing books. And no one really did write. But I was in a writer's group while I was there. And that was, I think, when I kind of thought, okay, I will, I, I went back to writing poems and I and I started to write kind of longer pieces and I thought maybe this is something I'll do. Um, but when I came home, the recession had hit and I went back to the paper, but I didn't get to go back full time. I was, you know, just doing shifts or whatever and just trying to make money basically and and, and get by. But, um, and then I was another year or so in Sunday Times when I got moved into the culture magazine, which is what I had wanted to do from the beginning. And that was, I was just so happy about that, you know, and I did that for years um, until I felt like I needed a change, um, which was just recently enough. And on that, like, again, Culture Magazine and, you know, how did you decide what you were going to review or who you were going to review? Um, Well, it depends. Like, so from the very beginning of writing in culture, I did it. I basically did a long feature, usually an interview every week. And I would, it would just, it was almost always people I was interested in would want to know about. And sometimes they'd be big named, you know, like um, Colin Farrell or Liam Neeson or someone like this. And they'd have a film coming out. And so that would be a great get, as they say. Um, And then there was like maybe authors that nobody had heard of or, um, you know, playwrights, but that whose work I really liked. And so would kind of push to get them done. And my editor from the beginning, um, John Burns, was very trusting in me and kind of let me do what I wanted. And I was, um, I did, I reviewed books sometimes and I was the theatre critic for about five years. Um, But, and then it was just basically whatever the main shows that were on, but I saw so many plays in that period, about a hundred plays a year. And when I started to kind of dread going to the theatre, that was when it was time to stop reviewing. And you moved over then, as you said, over to the home section of the Sunday Times. So that was quite a a deliberate move then at the time, was it? Yeah, I was, I was done with culture, like eh, not consuming it, but writing about it. I think like there's, there's a, there is a fear in journalism I would have that you can become cynical quite easily. And, and I have seen it around me. And I think if you're doing the same thing for a long time, no matter what that is, if it's culture or politics or whatever, you do become cynical about it. And I just was worried about that happening. You know, it had become too easy, not easy, but I, I knew the terrain too well and it wasn't enough of a challenge, really. And also your interests shift. Mm. I had had a child by then. 
I didn't, and he was very young, he still is, and um, I didn't have the same ability to be going to the theatre several nights a week. And, you know, that that was limited to me. And my interest had changed. Suddenly I was interested in gardening and interiors <laughs> and cooking and, you know, all the stuff that's in the home section. Like, I, I just, yeah, it was a very mid-30s move, I think. And you're enjoying I just it. bought my first house as well. So I think I was very into all that stuff. All relevant, exactly. So, but you decided amongst all of this, you were going to write a book. And I suppose I'm interested, was it a case that, you know, because you were interviewing authors all the time, and I know you'd, you'd spoken about when you were in Paris, you thought about it, and it didn't happen at that point. Was it because you were interviewing authors? Maybe did it inspire you to actually just get on with it? Um, no, I actually probably think the opposite. I probably intimidated me. And I even now, like when I'm writing and I'm in the early stages, I find it very hard to read other people's books. I just want to throw myself out the window because the finished book of their book is so good. And the beginning version of my book is so atrocious. Um, no, and actually probably to an author's maybe, and, and also getting sent proof copies made me realise how many books are published. Mm-hmm. I'm like, really, did the world need more books? No, probably not. But I, I just wanted to. It was always something I thought I would do at some point. And I kind of would set myself arbitrary deadlines. And then I was um, a couple of years off turning 30. I think, yeah, it was, yeah, it was a year or two before I turned 30. And I said, okay, I'm going to get a book written before I'm 30. So I took a sabbatical. Um, is that what it's called? Where you get... Bit of time, time off out. Unpaid yeah. leave. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I took one for three or four months and I went to London and I wrote a first draft um, in that time, which actually now I think back is very quick. I think it was three months, because, but I was used to writing so much for the paper that I, I guess I never broke that rhythm. Um, and I was kind of keeping office hours and stuff while I was writing the book. So, yeah, I eventually just did all it and did it. And I had no contractor. Nobody had asked for the book. I just did it off my own bat and I didn't tell people what I was doing. I just said, I'm going to London because when you're in a foreign place, that apparently is enough of an activity and no one asked really what I was doing there. And interestingly, I mean, the, the book you're talking about is Love in Row 27 and it ended up being set in London. So did being there influence how you wrote the book? Totally. And maybe even too much, you know, I would like if I overheard a conversation, I was like, well, I must shoehorn that in somewhere. Um, and I've probably learned to hold back a little bit since then. But yeah, it did. Um, I, you know, Irish characters is obviously what I'm most comfortable writing. Um, but the and, and so there are a good few Irish characters in the book. But the, the premise of the book is this um airline check-in attendant and she plays matchmaker by putting people seated next to each other on the planes so I needed a big international airport where you get loads of different people from loads of different places so London kind of made the most sense for that as well Um, and I got to discover it as the characters were discovering it you know so yeah it also just was a reason to kind of excuse to myself going to London when I guess I could have stayed in Dublin and written in that time but I I didn't know at that point if the book was going to work out if I'd be able to do it so it felt like well if I've gone to London then at least I didn't completely waste my three months off I I experienced something else. And did you feel you needed to take that time off to give yourself the opportunity to focus on just getting it done? Yeah I think so like even now I, I would find it very hard to do a first draft once the first draft's down it's easier but to do a first draft whilst working full time like it it depends you know if if I had a job where maybe I got you know I was teaching and I had summers off maybe that period would be enough or something but 
um in general i just feel like i need a lot of time to for the first draft to get that down and the nature of journalism is it often isn't office hours and it can especially when i was doing culture spill into the evenings and the weekends and that and so it would be hard to find that time um, i mean um, I, did, I did find it and i do for second drafts um but like i'm, I'm writing a book at the moment but i'm on kind of extended maternity leave so i have Obviously, I have two children to mind, but I also now have a bit of time where I'm not working in the paper. And I I need that anyway. And you have a deadline, though, if you're planning to go back. Obviously, you need to get that done before you go. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't think I'm going to reach that deadline. I didn't on my last maternity leave either, but I'll try and get the bulk of it done. Exactly. Get it get it out of the way. You, I mean, that book as well was a popular fiction book. And sort of some people had sort of felt when they heard that you were bringing out a book that there was an expectation you would go down the literary route because you've been an arts reviewer for so long. So how did you find all of that? Yeah, absolutely. Like a lot of people were surprised and like I had a lot of veiled comments and not so veiled about how, oh, you 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 know, you wrote this book because you just want to make money or, you know, you don't like well, people that had no clue how the industry works. So just people couldn't believe that because that I could possibly want to write commercial fiction because I write for, because at the time I wrote for the culture section of, you know, this broadsheet newspaper. But uh, no, it was, the story came to me, like the I, that, that premise of the check-in attendant playing Cupid was the idea and I'd had it for a couple of years and that's what I wanted to write. Um, I, I, I think the gap between commercial and literary fiction is, is narrower or, or more blurred that line than it used to be. Um, and I suppose my first, Love and Road 27, is probably the most sort of popular fiction or whatever. It's the most kind of traditional of a, a love story of, of any of my books. Um, and then it's kind of, it's got moved more into middle ground. But it was, I didn't really think about the kind of book it was. It was just what I wanted to write. And like, I, I know people say it, but I really do read everything. Um, I remember doing an interview on my first or second book with a photographer coming to my house and looking at my bookcase and being surprised that, um, Marion Keys was right beside John Bamble on the bookshelf, you know. Uh, since then, I bought a house and I alphabetize all my books. <laughs> this was when I was renting and they were all over the place. Um, but um, but, that's, but that's true. They're two of my favorite authors, you know, as an example. Um, but yeah, I definitely, people were surprised, but that's not my problem. You can't control what other people think of you. And how did you get it published? Mm, well, I... Well, I just did what like anyone would do. I had no extra in or anything like that. I when I finished the book, came home and I did a redraft and then I sent it to agents. I sent it to a couple of agents on this side of the Atlantic, but I mainly sent I think I probably sent it to nine or ten in total. I can't remember now. I mainly sent it to people in the States because my fear was that I maybe I'd get, you know, um, a kind of small publishing contract because the publishers might think they'd be able to sell a few copies of my association with the newspaper or that that might help in some way. And I don't know. I just I, I was so worried that the book was awful, as I always am, that I needed someone that just believed in the book and had nothing to do with me or my job or anything like that. It had to be about the book. So. I ultimately signed with a US agent and uh, I remember my first phone call with her. 
she said, hello, is this Ethne? And I was like, oh, great. You can't even pronounce my name. You're the perfect woman for me. You don't, you wouldn't care less what I do or, you know, where I am. Um, And so that's it. I signed with her as an agent. And then we, well, she sent it out to publishers. Um, Yeah. And then like, you know, you've got all these co-agents and the publishing was great. Like it was picked up by Corvus and imprint of Atlantic Books in the UK. And they published in the UK and Ireland. I think it was like nine, 10, 11 languages. I can't remember. They they sold it, you know, to different publishers around the world. And yeah, it was great. Um, and then, but it wasn't published in the States, even though my agent was there, but my second book was Grace After Henry. We got a, that got published in the States, which was a big moment for me. How daunting was it though, for, you know, the first book to be such a success? Um. It was, yeah, it, um, I was really worried before it came out. I always am. I haven't lost that. I guess I was kind of embarrassed about being an author, like I felt a bit notionsy or something, whereas journalism is, you know, a practical thing to do and, you know, it, no nonsense. Um, and I was I was very worried. I, I think I always would have thought that I would enjoy the kind of publication because the hard work is done and then you kind of just get to celebrate it and talk about it. But I'm, and I'm surprised at myself that that hasn't uh, necessarily been the case. I do find that difficult. I do genuinely like the writing on my own the best. Um, and yeah, it's a, I think it's a common desire of writers before the book comes out to go out and buy all the copies and burn them all. And I had that as well. And did you feel the pressure then for the second one or did you have the second one already written before the first one came out? I had the uh, like half half of it written by the time it came out. Um, I, I I just I'm just always fearful that it'll be terrible and I'll make a fool of myself. That is <laughs> that is the fear every time, and so it's just consistent. So it was no more and no less than it was for the first book, and no more and no less than it was for the fourth book. Um, but I guess I had a good feeling about Grace After Henry, my second book. I, it, it came relatively easily, and I really believed in the characters in a way that I hadn't experienced before. Like, I just, I, I guess I had a, had faith in that as I was writing. And that was, as you said, published in the US because you got a, a big deal with a US publisher there. So how did it, how did it go down in the American market? Um, I, to be honest, I don't think it sold as well as they probably paid me for it, um, you know, which is, which happens and that's what they do. They kind of hedge their bets, you know, but yeah, but the response was good and um, their views are great for Grace After Henry. I still get lovely reader emails. I got one on Monday um, and yeah, like the funny thing is like the Irishisms of this, you know, like even so there's a kind of sporting character in the book called Aoife and my my US editor was like this is not a name this is a collection of vowels you know like, <laughs> <laughs> I love it I love it because that's what I need to change this and that's what I was going to say did you have to adapt much of it for the American market then whatever about well, the I, names but other bits and pieces I didn't change Aoife because my goddaughter's name is Aoife and I had told her I would put a character called Aoife in the book so I couldn't change can't go that. back on that no you can't go back on that word but I did change other things um like I mean that's that's constantly happening with the books like things like um to give out to someone you know terms I didn't realize 
didn't travel. Um, so I made some small tweaks. But like I, my reasoning is, or my rationale would be that I read books from other countries and can generally get the sense of what something is. I don't know the rules of American football, but I you know, know that it's a sport that matters to a lot of Americans. And that's usually enough in terms of narrative. So uh, a few changes, but not too many. So your latest book then, It Could Never Happen Here. And it's interesting, again, you're you're looking, moving more into the sort of parenting space, you know, kids going to school, WhatsApp groups, small town politics. Has your, the topics you're focused on changed as you have grown and developed? And as you said, you know, you now have, have children yourself. So it's, you're still writing about what you're interested in. Yeah. And I think... You know, my kids are younger than the children in this book. Like in, in It Could Never Happen Here, the, they're kind of 11, 12. You know, there's a, a sexting scandal in the school and they're the, that's the age of the kids involved. Whereas my children are two and a half and eight months. So they're not at that point. But the, they are concerns that I have, like things that I find myself occupied with. Um, and the dynamics between parents and, you know, how we kind of, Sometimes we're parenting our own children, you know, in the oh, sorry, in the playground, we'll be telling them not to do something. And it's not really for them, it's for the benefit of the other adult, the parent of the other child. You know, you're kind of using your child to talk to the other adult. Those little small dynamics that happen once you have kids are, you know, interest me. And then those bigger things like like um like sexting and, you know, um, mm-hmm. general mobile phone use and stuff. I, I'm already worried about that, even though my kids are young. And so those were concerns. And I had been talking to primary school teachers, um, one originally, but a couple of sons about, and who, sorry, and, and who told me about sexting in her school. And I was like, what? In primary school, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I couldn't believe that this was something I was so shocked. And and that, you know, that you had to deal with when your kids were, were pre-pubescent. Um, and since then, I talked to a couple, another few teachers who kind of said the same thing. And I thought, that's fascinating. Like, how would I react if it was my child? Or, you know, how would the principal react, et cetera? So they come out of my concerns if they're not necessarily things that I'm immediately dealing with yet. So are you preparing yourself then for what's going to happen a decade down the road with your own kids? Is that it? (laughs) Yeah, I guess. I guess. Like, I mean, because I did some research around that particular issue and um, I was like, all right, so the only option is to move to a to the middle of nowhere and set up a commune and tell the children mobile phones were never invented. Like, honestly, that that's kind of what it feels like. But um, the idea, though, the kind of fun writing it is that you you take some kind of issue or topic like that that you're interested in, but you don't make the book too serious. You know, like it, the idea is that it is fun and you can play with characters and their dynamics. And I love small, like, um, stories set in small towns, like has that Agatha Christie locked room potential, even if it's not a murder mystery, although at the beginning of this book, there is a body floating in a river. So it is a bit of a murder mystery. But even without that, just the the kind of where all the characters are interlinked and you create a real sense of community. I love doing that, building that up. And that was the same with Three Little Truths, my last book. So, um, yeah, I guess there's worlds that I want to spend time in as well as, yeah, being issues that I'm going to have to deal with soon you know so how do you approach the writing then do you sort of sit down and try and flesh it all out initially as you said create that world before you start writing or do you sit and write um yeah like so i'm i'm at the beginning stage of my fifth book at the moment and it's going it seems to be going on forever which i partly blame on children being sick 
Um, and we're not supposed to say the writing is harder when you become a parent and mother. And anyway, in my experience, but it definitely is because you just don't have the same headspace to give over to it. So anyway, it's taking me a bit longer. And and at the moment, I'm trying to remember how do I how did I start all the other books? You know, every time it feels like I'm doing it for the first time, and I do seem to have a different approach. But generally, what seems to happen is I will just start writing. Just go start writing. Then I won't get very far, six, eight thousand, ten thousand words before I panic and realize I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just spiraling here on the page. <laughs> but I, I do, in hindsight, know that I'm building the character and idea of them. Often I will not use any of those initial six, eight, ten thousand words, but I now have a sense of the characters. I will then go and plot out the book. I don't plot every little detail, but I kind of work in a rule of thirds, um, or I have done up to now, where I want something kind of big to happen at the first third, something big to happen at the second third, and then the end. And I love a twist where you don't expect a twist. Mm-hmm. I'm not writing crime thrillers, but the books always have a twist in them. And it is so, so maybe my, my favorite thing people will say is that they didn't see the twist coming. Nobody has told me that they guessed it for this book or for Three Little Truths. So I'm delighted about that. And in terms Although, of... People can correct me. But. In terms of the twist, then, do you does that come to you as you're writing or have you got that figured out at the start? Um, well, it's, it's happened both ways. Um, but often what happens is if in, in the one case where I had it when I started out, it became too obvious. And so it actually became the red herring as opposed mm-hmm. to the real twist, if right. you know what I mean. Um, and then sometimes it comes to me with Grace After Henry. It's a smaller one, um, but it came to me while I was writing. Um, so it's hard, like, it's hard for me to say. I'm definitely, though, I do use post-it notes and they are different colours and I lay them on the floor and I kind of do that. But even, I don't know that I always follow the trajectory that I've laid out, but it just gives me faith that I'm not spiralling, which is what I feel like sometimes I'm doing, just writing um, on, without any destination in mind, you know, mm-hmm. and I kind of feel more comfortable when I have a general plan because then I can really enjoy the actual writing and it's not so planned out as to remove the creativity from it. And you're you were saying as well, well, you're on maternity leave at the moment. Are you writing every day then? Well, I'm, what I'm supposed to be doing, Rita, <laughs> is uh, writing every morning and then my um, my partner is supposed to be working in the kind of afternoons, evenings. But I, yeah, I was dealing with one plague after another in the house. And then I kind of, so I did, like like I said, those initial kind of, I think I wrote eight, 9,000 words, panicked. And now I'm back at the plotting stage and mm-hmm. I'm almost done with the plotting. So I'm hoping that I'm about to start kind of giving myself a set word count of a day, which is usually about 1,500. And that's, I'm about to start that. So, um, yeah. I'm working in the mornings. It's not like the plotting does take a couple of weeks when I get to that stage. And in terms of editing then, how do you find that process once you're sort of nearly handing it over to somebody else? Great. I love it. Um, <laughs> yeah, first draft, even if it's awful, I just love when it's finished and I, I don't have problems going back and cutting huge chunks or changing big things. Like I, the first draft is 50, you're 50% of the way there, you know, and then the second draft probably is another 25%. After that, I find it harder when I'm like at the point where I've started polishing words. It can mm. be hard when you send it to your editor and they say you should cut this or change this character. Usually I'm like, 
well, fuck them. And what do they know? Exactly. For a day, I just rage silently. And then a couple of days later, I usually realize that they're almost always right. Um, and I do trust that second opinion. And I, try, I, I believe that almost everything is better if it's shorter, if you can cut more out. So I try to remember that when I'm doing it and just cut it. The thing is, it's so hard to cut. But once you cut a scene or a character, you rarely think about them again. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just that initial. You think about how long you labored over it and then you're just going to put an X through it. But um, I think that journalism probably helps with that because I'm used to getting kind of brutal and swift feedback on work because something needs to be out, needs to go go to print straight away. Um, yeah, just get rid and move on. Essentially, exactly. you know, and move on. Just don't think about it again. It's like throwing out clothes. You think, oh no, I can't. Throw I might it. wear That's it again. Work. Yeah, and then once it's gone, you never think of it. hardly ever. There is always the occasional item that you're like, oh, that dress would have been perfect now if I hadn't thrown it out 17 years ago. <laughs> so you're working on book number five, as you said. Um, so any hints on what it's about? Um. Uh, no, <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm no, telling you nothing, Brita. No, 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 it's not bad. It's just I, I feel like it might change, but um, it's sent. It's set in Dublin. Currently, it's set in Hope. Um, three characters that end up living together um, for un, unlikely reasons or unexpected reasons, rather. Um, and yeah, I just don't really have enough there. I The thing is, I have an idea for another book that is completely unlike everything I've worked on so far. So I have been giving a little bit of time to that and doing a little bit of work um, on that. That's more like, I guess, I don't know what you call it, like new adult, you know, mm. those books. It's this very small genre, but it's kind of um, a sort of coming of age in your late teens, early 20s. So I'm kind of writing a new adult thriller as well or I'm working on the idea for that so I've got these kind of two things going on side by side but I'm trying to give priority to the fifth book the one that I'm under contract to write the one that I have to give over to somebody nobody's asking for my new adult side project but it just keeps eating into my head and are you with the same publisher that you were with from the start Uh, yeah I am here yeah yeah with Corvus the editor has changed um, and you realise when you're in the industry how, how often that can happen like my agent has changed agencies the editor the publisher has changed and but yeah I'm staying I've stayed with the same people you've mentioned as well you've an idea for a tv series oh yeah 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 that was like I, I do I also have one for a documentary but the tv series I would love to do and I kind of I would do that but again the pesky children just got in the way <laughs> Keep them in but the I way. still I still have that it's kind of um loosely based on on living with two friends two male friends in my 20s um and yeah I, I one day I hope to get to it great well we look forward to seeing it on the screen at some point <laughs> Ethna Shortall thank you for joining us here on Inside Books you'll find all of Ethna's books online or at your local bookshop now the next episode of Inside Books will be out soon just keep an eye on our Twitter feed for details the handle is at Inside Books I-R-E Inside Books is a unique media production with research by Cleona Plunkett and if you'd like to hear other episodes just search for us on the various audio platforms and don't forget to leave us a rating or review I'm Brida Brown until next time Keep reading. Inside Books is a unique media production.